Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steiner Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leo Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Support for this season of Assembly comes from the Improv Asylum in Boston, Massachusetts, and New York, New York, Consequence of Sound in Chicago, Illinois, and New York, New York, and Catherine Beckett in Brooklyn, New York. If you'd like to support Assembly, visit our website, www.theassemblypodcast.com, or you can email me directly, theassemblypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, we're about to start. Here we go. Got to be warned, and I've wrong the pattern of the beast of this show. She's foaming up at the lip, you see, getting warmer in the middle. She's carrying all the trash away, more than just a little. We're warm, we've got to move away from this show. The Modern School of Film presents Assembly, a look at what brings us together in parts. My name is Robert Malazzo, and I'll bring you what I see, what I hear, and what I learn. Now, let's start the assembly. friends catch up since last having met, sometimes it's easier to lay out what isn't new than what is. Maybe too much has happened in between hellos, or maybe change is so constant, so ordinary, it's unremarkable. Or, maybe, some long conversations aren't worth having. Whatever the reason, maybe sometimes we need to try. Since you and I last assembled, our year has been and remains cataclysmic and tragic and everywhere. Our lives, our communities, our choices, our connections, as well as our most basic actions, we inventory. We're living life deconstructed. Even words have changed. For example, those friends I mentioned who do get to catch up, well, no longer will their questions such as how are things or how do you feel or how are you be ceremony upon which to stand. Those are officially authentic questions in need of real answers. And to that part of the new normal, I say, it's about freaking time, though 2020, you could have just asked. In short, humanity's beneath the scaffold. 2020 is hindsight, and I personally can't remember a time when I've been as much in touch with my parts. There's a joke in there somewhere. There always is. But before we get to punchlines, let me start this season's assembly by saying, 
Welcome back, friend. I've missed you. On this season of Assembly, we'll be looking at a process, specifically how an artist makes something and ideally makes it funny. Now, although we'll be looking along lines, and he quite literally for them, I have a theory about the special sauce we're going to autopsy. Now, I could be wrong, but my theory is our strategy and our slab. So let's warm it up. Now, who's who and what's what? Where are we heading and why do we care? I am so glad you asked. Well, in a season of full disclosures, please allow me my first. I've known David Cross for 10 years. We've talked a lot about movies, a book or two, or how much he loves The Who. Basically, we've discussed inspiring things in ordinary ways and funny things in really unfunny ways. And one thing I've taken in, shall we say, is David never met a ceremony he refused to stand on. But first, I have a second full disclosure. I don't know David Cross at all, not a whit. I know what he does, but I don't know what he calls himself. I know some of what he thinks, but I have absolutely no clue what he feels. I have a sense of where he is now in his life, but no zippo about what drove him there. Most importantly, at least for us this season, I know what he makes, but I've never considered how he makes it. Until recently. So let's flash sideways. Whereas Faust, to put it mildly, lost his way, look him up kids, David Cross is taking the long way home. David's in the first stages of creating a new stand-up act by initiating one of our favorite things here on Assembly, a dialogue. But this dialogue isn't with his funny colleagues or childhood friends or his family. This dialogue starts with his audience, with us. Now, in this first part of David's grand assembly, the part we'll be following, David will be hosting and performing a series of intimate stand-up shows for about 100 ticket buyers in the basement of Union Hall, which is a small club which has an indoor bocce court for some reason. I'm just not hip enough, I guess. In Brooklyn, New York. And this season of assembly, which I snuck in just pre-COVID-19, I'll be on the ground to bring you one of David's workshop shows or gigs or whatever he's calling it. I gotta ask him. These shows David will be hosting will allow for 10-minute-ish sets uh, sandwiched in between sets by less established comics. These are sets where David gets to write and rewrite and cut and combine and overall get out into the air the DNA of material that will eventually become his next stand-up tour, or special, or neither. But wait, there's more. After each of these shows, this sort of lab-like approach to funny, David comes out literally and talks to the audience casually, conversationally, to get some biofeedback on what might be happening and what ain't happening on stage quite yet. Now, I know David's done this before, but what I do know is a drop in the bucket of what I do not know. For example, how does it work? And who is the audience? And what's love got to do with it? And that's not a misprint, because from my vantage, comics have always felt like equal part lover and fighter. They seem to despise any club that would have them as a member, yet it's a members only club. I also think, theory alert, funny people, maybe more than any other type of artists I've met in my years doing this, are sort of a supernova of each other. Well, their art, their funny, is their nova. But it sucks both ways. Because if movies, as Ingmar Bergman said, are cannibalism, comedy, trigger warning, is incest art. Too soon? But this is what makes David's assembly so fascinating. He's straying from home for the funny. You know, let me quit the metaphors for now. Frankly, mine's not to judge, mine's to assemble. Yes, I want to get inside David's process and his point of view and his purpose, but all as if I don't know him, which is kind of true, and as if I have no feelings, which I hope to fake. First though, as in all things 2020, before I head to Brooklyn and drink tea and thread needles, I want to take David's temperature by phone. Because if I can't thread this needle, I'm going to have to call in the bigger guns, folks who are more of an authority on David than David. After all, these are comedians we're assembling. Here's part one of the assembly. Nothing to see here. I need to speak to David Cross. It's very important, please. (laughs) Hey, man. Hey, how are you? I know you're busy. Thanks for sitting for a minute. But I had this vision that you had people. Don't you have people to run errands for you? I thought you would have a team of people. I do not have team people. I don't even have a singular person. (laughs) You're not even you half the time. (laughs) Cool. Simple stuff. What are you calling what you're doing now? These shows are just called, I know I'm mixing my metaphors, but shooting this shit, seeing what sticks. 
This is the second time I've done this. This is how I got the material for the prior tour. This is just writing the bits and thoughts on the uh, note cards and go, oh, this should come here and this should be before that. And we all know why I'm there. I'm not trying to pretend I don't see everybody. And I go up, just very loosely introduce the premise of the show and what's going on and just kind of chit-chat. Then I bring up a guest. Then I come out and do about... 15 to 20 minutes material, bring another guest, another 15, 20 minutes, have a third guest and come back out, whatever. It can be anywhere from five minutes to 30 minutes, depending on everyone's mood. And it's much looser. Like, you know, I ask the audience questions about sex or like, oh, I was thinking about this. I want to play around with this idea. And it sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And there's no assembly yet. I mean, sometimes you just kind of figure it out on your own. You're like, oh, I should do that after that. And towards the very, 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 very end, you know, I'll ask the audience, is that too much political stuff? Is it you want more? You want less? What about dad jokes? You want more? You want less? What about these jokes? More or less? You know, I always try to have a... a well-balanced show that way for sure but, um, but that happens at the end of the whole mega process not this stage per se right <laughs> this is just fucking around on stage and then i will move to a slightly bigger room also in brooklyn and uh these are all just by sheer coincidence either a, a quick uh, bike ride or a fairly quick walk from my house here so 12 minute bike ride down to Park Slope or Gowanus or wherever I'm going, and then I will move to an even bigger venue, and that's all about working on sequencing and segues and, you know, opening and closing and all that kind of stuff. Almost like when you're um, screening a rough cut of a movie, you know? You've done this laddering before, 99 seats, 200 seats, Goldilocksian, like different venues, which led to the Oh Come On Tour. Mm -hmm. What's the, the thought process? I don't want to go into a big, bigger room and just fuck around and waste people's time. I find it really gross and unseemly, like people, specifically comedians, who go out and do theaters and charge people a hundred bucks to watch them work material out. And they're already multi, multi, multi-millionaires tens of times over. I just think that's weird and gross. There's such a special, cool quality to being just a hundred of us in the basement. I also work better with the intimacy of the room uh, and I get more work done, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I've got my notes and everything on a little uh, like music stand and I'll refer to them and sometimes I'll just write in a word or an arrow or something that means pay attention to this later because uh, I do all my writing on stage, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, the people who are coming down are fans. So there's a, a built-in like patience, I guess. <laughs> but um, I know what I'm doing. I, I can turn it on on stage and be affable and funny and and i just think that's what the show the night it doesn't warrant a, a bigger or formal setting not yet once i gotten through this beginning initial part of the process and i've got stuff that i can look at on paper i can start adding to it i can go well here's an opportunity for a bit or i'll put in parentheses how or why or what's an example but that's way pretty deep into the process. Why incubate it in midair with people? Because you've done other tours where the material was in hand. Oh, that that is, no, that is something that is necessitated by the fact that I'm not good, disciplined, or just adept at sitting down, writing jokes from scratch, writing ideas. It just, I've tried it, it doesn't work, I'm not good at it, I wish I was, my life would be so much easier. It would be. I just am not good at it. And I think it's fucking brave. I don't know about brave, but plenty of filmmakers I know would say, fuck the audience. You're not seeing anything early. Well, I can't do that. I'm a stand up. <laughs> I mean, they're right in front of me. Yeah. Maybe if I make a movie, I'm like, well, fuck that audience in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who didn't, you know, I don't. Okay. But I can't say I can't have that attitude, nor would I. I probably wouldn't, wouldn't be in this business. Are you videoing or are you... I have a, no, you, I have a court stenographer sitting uh, alongside... Uh, no, I have, I have audio. <laughs> I have an audio and then I will listen, either listen to it or transcribe it myself, especially if it wasn't a great show. But I know there's a couple things I ripped here and there. And if it's a good show, I will send it to a, um, actually my aunt-in-law. I don't know if that's a thing. My wife's aunt. And she does that for a living, and she's out in California, and so I'll send it to her. And she's very cool and kind of will make little comments on the side. So, and she'll transcribe for me. I'll get it, and I'll go, oh, there's that line. There's that thing. It even helps to kind of cut and paste it and go, that's where that idea should go, and this should come over here. And then, you, even though you've written that on stage, you're kind of assembling it on a 
Microsoft Word and it's coming out like, oh, there it is. Here's the bit. Is there a downside to this process in this way? No, because the process, when you remove the documentation of it, is it's just very informal. We're all, we all understand why we're there. There's no pressure and it's loose and it's fun and it's 12 bucks and there's really good comics who are, who are doing really good stuff. You know, my, my stuff is definitely getting better and it's getting sharper as we go along, but I still have a long way to go and there's just no downside to it. Why are you doing this right now? Like at this time in your life, right now, this moment? I'm doing this for two reasons. One is I love doing it and I just hadn't done stand up in months and uh and I really palpably miss it when I like a month goes by and I don't do a set, I get itchy, you know, and uh and it's also good to kind of creatively get my juices going and the best thing about it is if I stopped tonight or if I stop in three months, all that material is ready to go. It's all in my back pocket. You know, that has in recent years become one of the more lucrative things I do. And and I got a kid now. It's like, okay, well, I got to go out and make some money. I can't just sit around and play video games and drink wine and eat pub cheese. You know, I got to, uh, <laughs> um, I got to make some money. And the fact that I don't have any other work in front of me and do you get nervous? No, not, not in this. I mean, I'll, I'll get amped up when I know we're taping, you know, when I know that I'm taping a special, but not, not here. Oh, except for the first show. The first show of every tour is a little like, I ask myself the same question. Do I have enough time? I don't know. And I'll have anxiety dreams. I don't know if I have enough time. I don't know how this is going to go. And then you come off stage. It's been an hour and 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, shit. Well, okay. I guess that's good to go. <laughs> you know. When I approached you about like observing it, do you think there's value here? Like someone looking at it? It's not meant to be looked at in, in that way uh, i mean I, I mean i can see the curiosity value to it but this process for me i'm not interested in that and i'm not necessarily interested in showing that I, I wouldn't serve you dinner with only three ingredients where i thought it you did 27 because there's not anything to watch it's just a guy <laughs> running on stage and uh it's not interesting to me i'm playing around it's just Again, seeing ideas like, well, I've tried that four times, four different ways, it's not working, time to move on, you know? So I won't hear a spoon song when I go see this. I did that already. Can't let go of it. Shut up, now listen to David Cross. There's so much you could learn, but you don't want to know. And now I got some good news for you. It's finally time for the show. teacher once told me that all Shakespearean characters lie about themselves. The only way to get to their truth is to make a list of the things other characters in the play say about them. Call that, and there's your truth. Now, I'm no bard, and David's not quite the melancholy Dane, at least not in this part, but this notion sounds spot on. Get smart people. More than one. <laughs> a non-Greek chorus. Well, they could be Greek, no problem. Principally, though, I want to find people who know David, who have worked with him, who have come up with him, or down, and can subtitle this movie before I get to the Brooklyn premiere. Ha! My kingdom for some smart people! I just hope they're home. Hello, is this Rob? How are you? I'm good, how are you? Am I early? No, you're great. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Janine Garofalo, and I am a stand-up comic who occasionally gets acting or voiceover jobs. I was at college in Rhode Island, Providence College. I started doing open mics my junior year, and I would drive into Boston to try and get on open mics there. That is where I met David, who I believe, um, I think he's a year older than me, but I don't know if that translated into a grade higher. But I do know that he had either left of his own accord or was kicked out of Emerson having to do with stealing a mailbox. 
It's a classic story. Exactly. We just, uh, I just liked his sensibility. And then we just became friends. I want to tell you a little bit about what he's doing now. He's developing new material, but starting it small in small clubs and moving it into bigger clubs. And along the way, he's interacting with the audience in various states. Does it surprise you he's doing it that way? Creating a dialogue? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. And and there's other comics like George Carlin, for one. I used to go watch him workshop his show at the Comedy Store when I was in Los Angeles when I was on like Criminal Minds or 24 briefly. And I would find out George Carlin was workshopping and I would go see each night of it. And then sometimes I would find out Paul, this is when I was younger, Paula Poundstone would be a week at the last stop in Houston. And I was in Houston. I would go every single night. And these cats had a dialogue with the audience? Paula Poundstone was much more open. George Carlin was absolutely on book. It's just two totally different forms. Um, George Carlin is finding out where the last are, but he's not seeking out your opinion. Paula Poundstone's very interactive. Well, David's interacting at the end of the set. Does that surprise you? No, not at all. I think it's who he is. It's creative. It's just a creative endeavor. Uh, I was supposed to be at the Edinburgh Comedy Festival. You know, they, they ask that you do an hour, uh, get the sets ready. But I actually, it would have been my fourth Edinburgh. I pretend that I have it ready, and I tell them it is, but I still don't lock it down. Just not interesting to me to do that. But it really is no different than me doing stand-up the way I do it, which is the way I do it, which is sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. But many is the time in Edinburgh and other places, I'll just walk right into the audience and say, what did you think of that? Do you like this better or that better? Like, uh, I like to walk around the tables and things like that. There have been times where I've handed out post-it notes to the audience or cards saying, uh, put a pin in that. What do you put a pin in that? You know, because I, I, w- I want to remember something. And, and it's amazing to me how much they enjoy it. Depending on the audience, they seem like, yes, I'd like to write it down. They're doing something. It's active. When you've been doing stand-up as long as I have and David has, you can't stay married, I think, to certain things. Now, there's some comics that have. That's what they do. I can't. I can't imagine, after all these years, locking stuff down. But I think it's fun to interact with the audience and, and use the fact that there's live people right there. Is this the new future of stand-up? Is Zoom the new future of stand-up? Not for me. Um, I apologize you have to see my face. No, it's okay, man. You look good. Good morning. What's your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Patton Oswalt. I'm a comedian. What's your relationship to David Cross? Uh, we've been friends since, God, probably 93 or 94. I, I would remember him coming into San Francisco to do shows and I was instantly a fan. And then just sort of, you know, fell into his orbit of, because uh, we had so many friends in common. And he was a, he was a huge inspiration for me creatively. How often do you see him? You know, I see him when he comes to LA, but of course that hasn't happened and it's not going to happen for a while. Me and my wife and him and his wife do Zoom drinks every now and then, but that's about it. How do you develop material? I just go do little open mics and showcases at the comedy store or the Laugh Factory or Largo. I do my shows and that's how I work out new material. And then also I'll do it when I'm doing a paid gig, do 90% material that I know works. And then I'll try out 10% in the middle of the set. Like that's how I always do it. I I like doing standup and that's how you develop new stuff is you go on stage. Funny that David is actually back on stage. Good. He's doing shows at Union Hall, a hundred people, 12 bucks, no friends or family. But I think there is a sort of reflective interaction with the audience, less so as he goes, but definitely some unstaged feedback on what they saw. Nice. Does it surprise you David's doing it that way? I mean, if that works for him, I'd want to see it. I just, I can't imagine it working for me. But if it works for him, that's great. I mean, it's not for me, but okay. Why does a comic do it? Is it the height of insecurity or is it? It means they weren't being present while they were performing. They should know what worked and what didn't. It should be obvious. No, I, I know what worked and what did. You know, like I can feel it in, in what I'm doing on stage. You know, if, if you need to, if you're a comedian and you need to go to the audience, hey, what worked and what didn't? Do you not know? Couldn't you tell what was working and what didn't? My God. Do you hate doing these? Honestly. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. I just, my only worry is how much I can add. I mean, it. you have a very, you have a very calming um jonathan katz kind of tone to your voice that's very nice i'm actually full body vibrating right now (laughs) what's your name and what do you do Uh, my name is sarah silverman and i'm a a comedian yeah i don't mind comic i don't mind comedian i i just think comedian seems like the what the truth is to describe me i guess but i i don't not picky about it i'm not a big fan of comedian. 
but uh, I don't think anybody is anymore. <laughs> like a little, a little comedian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, there goes my question about poetess. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> um, what's your relationship to David Cross? Um. Oh gosh, Long, uh, I've known him for decades. I would say that we're friends. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I, you know, it's it's uh, David's a uh, um, tricky one, but I, I would say that we're friends. We're and I, um, when I see him, I am so happy to see him, and I love talking to him, and I love uh, laughing with. But, you know, truly like a solid year or two could pass without hearing from him or seeing him or any. Uh, this is a very long, this is a very circumlocutive answer for just, you know, we're, we're I would say we're, we're friends, we're good friends. Um, but we, you know, we, we live very, um, you know, we don't intersect a lot much anymore. And I probably could say that to, about all my friends. You know, we live these kind of, especially comedians, and I, I probably musicians too. And 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 I, you know, but like uh, we live these parallel lives, especially in normal times. We're on the road, and we just we kind of live these semi-solitary parallel lives, and then we intersect at certain things, and it's it's great. It's always uh, joyful with comedians. You know, it's like. Um, an American seeing another American in, in a foreign country where you don't speak the language and everything's so different. And then you just hear someone going like, well, I have lasagna. And you're like, hello. You know, like, I think it's that kind of um, excitement when comics get to see each other. You know, Everybody knows comics are kind of designed with high highs and low lows. And I see us as a, a kind of um, misfit toy. David is... Um developing new material now and a key feature is this dialogue with the audience of increasing determination let's say what do you think about that in abstract and as it relates to david wow oh i think it's fascinating here is an audience he wants to make laugh but maybe not at any cost you know in a world filled with social media where we're constantly hearing other people's opinions like it might not be so bad to hear what they have to say or like you know especially because when you do stand-up just like any art and stand-ups never want to call themselves artists because it's too hoity-toity but just in a technical way you know that you're putting something out there and then it kind of can't be yours anymore you can't control how people infer it the way that they take it in has to do with their own lives their own experience the moment in time the climate in time, you know, and so it is kind of interesting to see what it becomes once it hits the air, you know, it's kind of like the Heisenberg principle, you know, a little like, you know, like it's not in a vacuum, you're not doing it in your bathroom mirror. So now maybe it's a chance that David gets to see what he's putting out. He gets to see what's happening to it when it hits the air, you know. Is it playing it safe? No, it would be safe. It would be playing it safe if he did the material, asked the audience what they thought, took those notes and made changes accordingly. I mean, it may be very uh, only a sliver different, but I think what he's doing is he's doing his material. He's asking the audience what they think, and then he's taking that and doing what he wants with it. <laughs> you know, it would be my guess. How often do you see him? I saw Ross and Benjamin... You know, at the beginning of the year, you know, I don't know, within the past year, I went to one of their houses. We played Secret Hitler. Why do you guys always call each other by your, your surnames? Are you like in the army or something? Or are you athletes? <laughs> like, oh, that's Rock and Spader. And that's, is that just, can I do that? Or that I can't get away with that, can I? I don't know. I mean. I'm afraid to call David Cross. I'm afraid to call him Dave. I don't say Cross. I usually say David. Yeah, I do too. Benjamin is just again. I'm I've known him for years. He dated my sister for many years. My parents still adore him. Like we, you know, I do Bob's Burgers and all. You know, I cross paths with them, and I, I, I think everybody calls John Benjamin Benjamin. Um, I'm not aware of that. I mean, I'm not sure she's accurate on that. Uh, she might call me Benjamin. Do comics call each other anything other than last names? I, I think that's a maybe a particular type of comic successful perhaps what's your name and what do you do i do voiceover and acting and writing i guess as well oh 
Um, it's John Benjamin, and I'm a free thinker. That's impressive. That's a great title, man. Thank you. Does a free thinker mean you don't get paid or you're free to think? It's just the, the sign that's on my door. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about Worcester, and I don't normally do this, but I was doing it for you. Uh, local Boy Makes Good. Oh, nice. You didn't do Friendlies, like a fribble at Friendlies? Yeah. Friendlies was in my neighborhood. <laughs> my grandmother ate there every day. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. She had a double cheeseburger, I think, every day and died at 96. So thank you, Friendlies. That's pretty fucking friendly. <laughs> That was very friendly, yeah. <laughs> I think I've met David, you know, through being a catch up in Boston. Dave was probably already established a catch, so he was performing more regularly there. Not without controversy, Dave always split the audiences, which was kind of a good thing about Dave. You know, Dave was kind of a flashpoint figure amongst comedians who were just coming up. Dave was also a very giving and thoughtful lover. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I met Dave, like literally, is that, is that what you're getting at? It can be. So yeah, we, I think I met him at a, at a rock show at TT the Bears and like a Sunvolt show or something. And I think I pretended to be like an LA manager, which I think went really poorly. Like, I like, hey man, I've seen you. I, I like your stuff. He was like, you're an LA manager, huh? You're Dave was somebody like at the time who you wanted to impress. So in Boston, if he split the audience, does it surprise you he's leaning on them now? I, I don't know if it surprises me. I mean, he's being sincere. Yeah. Uh, he certainly wouldn't have done that early in his career. That's for sure. Uh, knowing Dave, that would have been completely antithetical to like the way I used to see him perform stand-up. He really always sort of had a chip on his shoulder. Don't ever uh, pass any advice on to him. He just seemed like he'd destroy you for that. But I think that was a construct, you know, from the way other people thought of him, not the way he really was. So why do you think David presented that image? Well, I, I don't know if this is correct, uh, but I can uh, offer a theory. I do think Dave had a complicated relationship with stand-up when I first met him. And because Dave had that complicated relationship with stand-up, I could be completely wrong about this. I think it, it's always something he wanted to not correct, but become at peace with. His professional life took him away from stand-up for a good period of time, like Mr. Show. But I think he always wanted to sort of, you know, figure out how to be a better stand-up. Like you said, uh, I do feel like when you're a performer, your first instinct probably is to please the people you're performing for uh, to a degree. That wasn't the whole story for Dave, I guess, even though it was the lead oftentimes when he used to perform stand-up. Uh, like I said, I can't go deep into that, I, but I, I, that, would be my, that would be a brushstroke of what I think. Brushstroke is everything. Thanks, Chorus. I'll be back in touch. <laughs> the brushstroke, the force we use to grip and move and apply the instrument. That's all I need. That and a quiet place to sit in Brooklyn, which is arguably the biggest challenge I'll face this season. <laughs> so grab a scone, come back. Let's have some tea with David. The game is afoot. But now this. Hey, folks, it's me again. It's Rob. <laughs> Here in the break, I'd like to tell you about the Modern School of Film. The Modern School of Film is a school where I get to teach you how to make things, creative things, your things, work that is your voice, like assembly maybe. <laughs> Along the way, I bring in guest instructors from the worlds of movies, music, performance, comic books, comedy, animation, literature, culture, performance, politics, sports, education, media. I think we also had a chef to lead classes in making, storytelling, documenting, writing, culture, aesthetics, sometimes plain old movie watching. Oh, and occasionally we'll teach you how to take a punch or two. Thanks, Professor Dolph Lundgren and Professor Wesley Snipes. <laughs> if you'd like to take one of our online courses, please visit us, www.modernschooloffilm.com. All the information is there. You can email me directly if you have any questions. Also, follow us at Mod School of Film. I'm so grateful that students from around the world take Modern School of Film classes, and I'm even more grateful to have learned so much more than I could ever teach. So check us out. Now, back to the assembly. 
Oops. My alarm telling me to meet you. <laughs> well, the two best are Yorkshire Gold and PG Tips. Is it a quality of the ingredients or just... I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, PG Tips has a, a tiny little bite to it. Teeny tiny little bite. Barely noticeable. And then uh, Yorkshire Gold is really smooth, I'd say. Those are the two I drink. Also, I'm on muscle relaxants. So I have to have a eye surgery tomorrow. So I'm the day before you have to pills and drops and stuff so i'm a little slow what's the eye surgery for is everything okay my eyes are too messed up for lasik so i get this thing called prk which is a precursor to lasik and lasik evolved from this thing it's still a laser surgery but it's supposed to have roughly the same effect it just took a two percent chance that it doesn't work and it didn't work so everything's kind of blurry double triple vision i put something in there too (laughs) okay okay Ironically, I have to wear glasses to drive and to see, to read anything. And even then, it's really frustrating. And uh, yeah, it's a bummer. And they can't fix it. I, I don't know. I don't know the whole thing. It's a bummer. The whole thing's been a really tragic mistake because it was voluntary. Anyway, it's a long, I don't feel like talking about it. Okay. We're here in the service of stand-up. I always think of you as a writer-actor first. But what do you, like, call yourself? Honestly, it depends on who's asking. Like, if I want the conversation to be short, if it's a stranger and I'm in a long line where I'm not going to be able to get away, I just usually say, I write, you know, I'm a writer. And then some other times, if it's people who are friends of friends or you're meeting somebody's relative, you know, I'll say, oh, I do all kinds of stuff in the arts, you know, write and act and produce and direct, all that kind of stuff. And they sort of dismiss it. I learned early on, and I mean early on when I was in my 20s, not to say stand-up unless it comes up, unless, you you know, you don't want to lie, obviously, but uh, it invites all kinds of questions and lends itself to having a real long discussion that you don't want to have, whereas uh, writing, acting, they, they usually say, oh, where would I know you from? And then you list a handful of things, it's like, oh, okay. And that's then it's sort of over, you move on to other things. So, uh, yeah, I just uh, avoid saying stand-up, you know. What's your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is David Cross, and uh, I'm a cosplay uh, kind of gadfly, I guess you might say. Uh, I don't really earn a terrific living at it, but I I can make ends meet, and I have two ends uh, that I'm trying to get to meet and, you know, working on it. Okay. Process, I want to talk a little bit about stand-up, and almost, and not to sound insulting, almost as a rhetorical process or a rhetorical result. And now you're calling into the audience to discuss. It's kind of interesting that, like, you're opening it up to close it back down. That was never my intention initially. When I was getting... uh, Oh, come on together. I never thought, oh, I'm going to ask the audience, uh, you know, I'm going to do it this way. I just I, I just figured out a way to do it, which is what you're currently seeing. But uh, it occurred to me to ask a question. like, And then a lot of it was about when I get a little later into the process about sequencing and did it feel like that was too much of this topic or not enough of this topic or, you know, things of that nature. Is a stand-up preternaturally a writer? Are those linked concepts? It's writing as a verb because you're writing things, not necessarily sitting down with a typewriter in a room with no distractions and writing out a set. That's certainly not how I do it. But yeah, you're writing, whether it's in your brain or on you know pen to paper or computer screen. So yeah, you're writing. You're creating something out of nothing. So I tape every set. Audio and video? or No, just audio. Six, seven, eight shows. I'll listen to them and I'll have an idea of like, oh, I remember that thing that I said that was in that bit. Eventually, when they start kind of fleshing out, I'll send them to a transcription service and then I'll be able to pull those lines. It'll be like in blue as opposed to black in my, you know, computer font, whatever. And and then I'll print that out and I'll just have to remember, okay, in this bit, which I've done a bunch now, I need to put that new thing in there. That So that's technically writing. I am tippy-tappy tipping on the computer. So yeah, you're writing. You're creating something out of nothing with words. I don't know if I answered your question. Do you know any stand-ups who aren't writers? Uh, myself. I don't write. I guess I'm, I should ask you, what do you mean by writing? Let me untangle this a different way. You said you had to look at notes before a show. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to tell me what's in them. What do they look like? Well, they're definitely words. They're not symbols. <laughs> I mean, That's I, wrote, I wrote words. Well, there would be two answers to that. Or, or I should say there are two things that I'd look at. One is just the shorthand thing, which is a just a visual reminder of like, oh, that comes next. I know what the idea is. And I'm going to riff within it, but that's the thing. So it could say, this isn't a real bit, but it could say, Queen's Bicycle. 
And it could be a whole story about I was in Queens and I saw a bicycle and blah, 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 whatever. And then the other thing that I would look at is cobbled together from other sets that where I would do the idea and then I'd riff a couple lines and I'd look at it and then I'd highlight those things, meaning, okay, I got to remember to say that this time. That sounds like writing. Well, you know, again, I, I know I contradict myself, but it's not like I'm writing Les Miserables from with a blank piece of paper. You know what I mean? Is there any value in protecting this process because it's the opposite of the result? Um, when you say protecting, what do you mean? I was thinking of a magician in a sense. Taking, let's say, your notes and showing them on a website. You wouldn't do that. I mean, I would if it was years after the fact. You can't show anything until you've done till the set is aired if you if you once once the set is aired then you burn that material it's it just potentially ruins the experience for somebody stand up is the only art form i know of that you can't repeat stuff you know i can't you can't play the hits you can't do covers you can't uh do an album you know nobody's interested for good reason i i you know i love listening to Patton Oswalt, but I don't want to hear an entirety of his second set. I know, you know what I mean? I want to hear new stuff, and, and stand-ups don't have that uh, luxury of, of doing that. Yeah, it's stand-up. It's not... I mean, this this thing, this thing that you're doing works, uh, you know, I think in for any other uh, art form, um, it just doesn't work well for stand-up, because I can't... I'm not going to tell you the bits. You can't put them out there before I get a chance to do them. And I don't mean to undersell it, but there's really nothing... And I think I said this when you initially approached me about this. I'm like, I, there's not a lot to talk about. The, the thing that you are recording, the thing that you're interested in, the thing that the, the, the raison d'etre of this whole thing, you can't have any access to. Unfortunately, not being a dick. Just You're not being a dick. I, I just don't speak French. Okay. You started stand-up super early. Mm-hmm. And correct any of this if it's wrong. Uh, before you were 18. The week before my 18th birthday. is Yeah, I was at, I went to the punchline. Did an open mic at the punchline in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Amazing. And you killed it that night. I killed. It was, it was just ridiculous. Because, I mean, it was a like bad hacky movie like if you saw it in a movie you're like all right dial it down a bit guys it's not <laughs> it wasn't that good yeah it was uh seemingly the greatest thing that could happen but uh realistically the worst i just understandably uh didn't do well the next 30 times i went up and i just didn't understand I, what was the difference i'm just the same stuff and i truly didn't get it and i it was a it was a difficult thing to to experience. What do you think it was? Was it the material? Was it the youth? Was it the night? Was it the crowd? You know, a little bit of all that stuff, maybe. Um, I, I can't tell you. It's, it's every audience is different, and uh, certainly for an open mic night, and certainly for an open mic night in uh, 1982 in Georgia. I can't tell you what the difference was. I know you're a Who fan. Was it just kind of like anarchy to jump up there, or were you like, I'm really, I really want to do this? I mean, I was nervous. I mean, I was, I thought I was going to throw up. I was so nervous, and and almost like went to like a catatonic state right before I went up. I remember the green room. I remember the guy I was hosting, and now you kind of sit on this little bench, tiny little thing in this room off the stage. Uh, there's a curtain, and you know you can see the brick wall behind you, or whatever the back thing was. And I mean, I was like, it was almost like I was on drugs. And uh, were you? No. Um, and a big part of it was I felt this thing that like this is what I'm supposed to do. It was never any thought of quitting ever of just like it just didn't make any sense it was just like this is what i'm gonna do it's gonna suck a lot but it'll be fun a lot and i'm gonna do it and you know you make friends with other comics and they're very supportive other comics uh especially in your little niche your clique uh can be very 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 supportive is there a peer that a couple of peers that you would name check initially paul clay and rex garvin were probably my two closest stand-up friends in in atlanta when we were doing open mics and rex was (laughs) crazy this black guy was like just esoteric and wild and and just doing all kinds of ballsy stuff and paul was very like kind of intellectual writer who actually wrote his jokes crafted them uh and he did he rose uh much more quickly than rex or i and rex ended up going to denver and 
but the three of us were pretty close. And then, and then one of my best friends growing up, Mark Rivers, who I've known him since I was 15. I've worked with him. You know, he's worked on a bunch of stuff, and he composed the Mr. Show theme. And my peers were some of the most important uh, influences on me as I went through stand-up to, up, to, up to this day. I'm sure that'll weave into this thing, right? I doubt it. Tell me your name and what you do. Uh, Rex Anthony Garvin. I'm a laugh specialist, feel-good therapist. I'm also a cook where I do personal soul food that heals. And that all came from my insanity doing stand-up comedy. Do you remember the first time you met David? Oh, big time. That's my man. Whoa. In 1982. And David Cross at that time was mentally not well because David is twisted. (laughs) So... (laughs) At that time, man, you know, looking for your funny, nobody was doing it like that, especially being a comedian. It it ain't like it is now where everybody's a comedian, everybody's a rapper, you know. At that time, there was very few people doing it. That's how we connected. But David is not well. David is, you know what? To be a young Jewish guy like a David in Atlanta at that time, David had the mindset of a comedian coming out of the village in New York, even though he was a young Jewish kid in the South. And that showed you how advanced for him to have that mind to go there the way he did as a human. You know, Atlanta was always, it was like another version of Nashville. You had the redneck bands, the white bands, the black bands. So the arts was always there, even in acting, but never comedy, never comedy, not yet. And for some reason, we just connected. What's your name and what do you do? I'm Paul Clay. I'm a comedian and a comedy writer. Well, David and I started doing stand-up in Atlanta. I grew up in New Jersey. My family had just moved down there. I was going to college, and uh, this club, The Punchline, opened in uh, 1982, and we both started going down there and going to amateur nights. That's how we learned to do it, and clubs were opening everywhere. Nobody knew how to do comedy. Everybody was just figuring it out. David was 18. I was 19. I just said, I'm going to go down there and do that till I get good at it. I don't know why. All of us were kind of like that. It was a fun group because nobody, we didn't really have any models for comedy. So we were all just trying to figure it out ourselves. And at that time, there were no comedians from Atlanta or Dallas or Denver. In the South there, they brought most of them from New York. And it was funny because New York comedians are always like, hey, where are my Puerto Ricans at? Okay, where are the Haitians? How about the Jews? You know, it's like in Atlanta, nobody knew what they were talking about. So. At that time, everybody was learning about comedy. I, I did say to one of my friends, like, hey, I, I, all the comedians I, were doing coke, but um, all the audiences were coked up, you know? So I, I never did coke, but, and, and David wasn't. I mean, a lot of, not everybody was doing coke, but it was the cocaine 80s. And sometimes I think like that was the art form for uh, cocaine. You know, people wanted to talk, they wanted to hear people talk. And then I said to a friend like that, there's an art form for every drug, like, you know, and there was psychedelics, you had rock and roll of the 60s, you had jazz, you had, you know, pot and alcohol. And, and then I said to my buddy, you know, there's no art form for meth. And he said, yeah, there is. It's the X Games, you know. Let's do a backflip on the snowmobile. You know? David had a full set of black hair. Full set. David never really fit. I don't think David can blame it on the South because most Jewish kids who had black Afros anyway, no matter where you go, were picked on. I think it was David's insecurity. That's why David really never made it in Atlanta. He had to go elsewhere. Um, David really took off in uh, California, California. Him and Paul Clay went out at the same time. David Cross and Paul Clay stayed at my, my, aunt, my cousin's place who was on Broadway, Lavinia Perry. You remember that television show SWAT? Well, that's my cousin-in-law, Rod Perry. Um, He wasn't there at the time, but... The audiences didn't know what to do with him a lot of times because they were pretty conventional. He would be kind of antagonistic with the audiences. He had a lot of very funny bits that we would thought were hysterical. Like he had a bit about how he was shaving the Pope's pussy. Um, He would do this thing where he would talk about how he was in an arcade and he had a skin magazine in his back pocket and the Pope came up to him. And I can't remember how the rest of the bit goes, but somehow he talks about how he was shaving the Pope's pussy. And then the audiences would kind of groan and not know what to do. And then he would get mad at them and go, people, the Pope doesn't have a pussy. He's not a man. He's a man. What are you talking about? You know, and so they were just like, well, are we supposed to laugh or not? David would just be kind of mad at them. I don't, you know, sometimes he would end his act going, I'm the Yankee Jew, good night. 
we loved him. He's like, I'm not gonna, you know, do some cute little act for you, you know, Georgia Bulldog guys in polo shirts, you know? <laughs> it's like, I'm like, a, I mean, imagine 18, 19 year old guy who loves punk rock music and is, you know, went to performing arts high school. He was, he was like, he was already a, an alternative comedian before there was a name for that. Dave would call me up and say, hey Rex, man, let's go down to the uh, like 24 hour fitness where they uh, lift weights and stuff and just mess with people. <laughs> he wanted to go down there and lift weights because he's real skinny and be talking shit while he's lifting weights <laughs> so other people can look at him. Dave would always call attention to himself so he can perform. Even without a microphone, he would perform. Dave would like go to McDonald's and, and become an old Jewish man and then he'd be in the bathroom uh, squeezing the soap thing, and he goes, Boy, you, you don't get much of a lather here on this, you know? My God, you don't get... And, there's, and then there's a guy in the toilet bowl <laughs> listening to this, and Dave's in the bathroom at McDonald's. Yeah. You don't get much of a lather on this. What's going on? And people in the bathroom looking at him. He would use the stage anywhere he can get. Do you think this was about craft or David's unfiltered instinct? Unfiltered instinct. And you can't teach insanity. No. No, no, no. You have to be born with it. You cannot teach what David does. A comedian is always in touch with the drama first. Okay? Because the comedians you know, are not well. What's that clown? Emmett Kelly? That's, that's a comedian. That's the real deal. Because comedy is no joke. Comedy is not funny. Comedy is not funny. You're pulling from a drama. You're pulling. You're pulling from it. Dave pulls from his childhood. And also, he pulls from a fucked up place. We used to, you know, go over to his mom's house and we'd play uh, poker. We'd, you know, make chili and we'd, I don't know, hang out and talk comedy. And David's dad, I remember, was not a great guy. He wasn't around and he had left his mom. And David was really kind of an angry young guy, mad at how his mom was treated by his dad. Yeah, she was very well-educated, smart woman, and she. we never met his dad, and he had some stories about his dad being a jerk, and, you know, so I think he was just mad that his, his mom was treated so poorly and that they were, you know, she was left to raise all three kids. You know. Did you think he's not long for here? He's not going to be here long. In Atlanta? Yeah. You couldn't get a sitcom. There weren't many sitcoms. That wasn't even really a path. Back then, most people just wanted to be good comedians. You know, even the guys who were ahead of us, like Seinfeld and Leno, and they would come through and we'd work with them. Um, they just wanted to be great comedians and, you know, maybe go on The Tonight Show a hundred times. Like, you know, a lot of comedians take a while to find their voice, to learn who they are. And I'm sure David has evolved and he has gotten, you know, better as a comedian. But he's one of these people who, like... He had this truthful, honest voice right from the beginning, you know. He wanted to go out in a bigger world than, than what Atlanta was at the time. He's not really afraid of anything. That's what's great about comedy, too. Comedy is at its best when it cuts through everything and says the truth. It can say the truth before other people can. And then him and his friend Mark would get together, Mark. And Mark was just as twisted as he was. Man, those two together, man, they were off the chain back in the day. They have a rhythm. It's like, you know, Paul McCartney and uh, John Lennon and Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. They got that thing together. Even when they were young, you, you, you could see it. And there was a, a chicken place there called Miss Winners. And these two would start acting up at the chicken place. They'd, be, they'd, they'd say something like, uh, for the ladies that you meet, Mrs. Winners white meat. Hey, for the ladies with the hots, Mrs. Winners tater tots. Hey, and that's what him and Mark would do. They made that stuff up. David, Mark, and Paul Clay, all three of those guys was the best time of me trying to find myself. But man, they were the best memories, man. And those, you can't get those days back. Those are some great days, man. Everything was brand new and fresh and it was unfiltered and it was, it was, it was beautiful, good times. And Mark was just as twisted as he was. Is he still around? For the ladies that you meet, Mrs. Winters White Meat. I, that's, I, I, I do remember it actually. Hey! <laughs> Jesus. I see another Grammy nomination in your future, my friend. Totally, yeah. Uh, my name is Mark Rivers. I am a musician turned comedy writer, turned back into a musician and sometimes comedy writer. And I've known David since we were teenagers. So 
and we've been good friends and occasional collaborators over for several times over the years. I've made myself aware of the fact that I've known David probably longer than in anybody. If you love something, set it free, Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was in a band. We were three Georgia teenagers who really wanted to be a Canadian power trio. We really wanted to be Rush. And I kept hearing this name, David Cross, and how funny and ballsy and uh, how much I'd, I'd hit it off with David. When I met David, he held out his hand to uh, to shake hands, and I and I took the back of his hand and I licked it. I guess it made an impression. I don't know. That's what's what passed for absurd hilarity in, uh, in 1982. He had a pretty daring look going. I mean, he had like a mop of curly hair, sort of like a Jufro. He had this bright green blazer that he wore with the sleeves rolled up. And he wore a plastic baby earring. My Southern conservative stepmother did not like anything about him. I just hate the sound of him. He got that that white, that nasally Jew voice. <laughs> that nasal that nasally Jew voice, she described it. Oh my God. <laughs> get drunk and uh, sort of fall into these characters. Not for any purpose other than to, to entertain ourselves. You know, a lot of them were redneck characters. You know, these redneck party dudes who just wanted to, uh, you know, get pussy and drink beer because that was the low-hanging fruit, you know. And there was some satisfaction and relief in making fun of all the many rednecks around us. We tried taking some of these characters up on stage once. Let's take it. Let's, you know what, man? We got to take this to the world, <laughs> to drunk teenagers. And it went over reasonably well. I don't think people were really hip to what we were trying to do. Um, and we, I'm sure we didn't make it very clear. There's a lot of hackiness going on. And I think David was trying to do weirder, different, more creative stuff. Generally, he went over reasonably well. But I don't remember him ever sucking. You know, like everybody, he was trying to find his voice, you know, and he was very young. It took him a while to find it, and it wasn't, not to say he was always doing brilliant material, but he was always trying to do something more creative and and, uh, more interesting. I think he had some resentment towards uh, the people he had grown up around. He was bullied and underappreciated as a kid and a teenager and I think he was probably always performing for his friends in the audience and the other comics and that's probably how he got through my dad loved him I always liked old David David he's a, he's a crack up he's a good he's a good guy but oh man my stepmother hated hated David probably still does he's got that dead baby earring <laughs> Jesus after Atlanta David went to Boston you followed not too long after but how did that feel when he left that was probably the worst year of my life. My band had broken up. I didn't have that anymore. I had no creative outlet. Wasn't meeting or hanging out with any cool, interesting people. It was a bummer. So those were the first peers. Then when I moved to Boston, of course, everything changed dramatically. Uh, that's That was a real scene. That was an important scene. Nobody, you know, you had a sense of it, but now in retrospect, you can look back and go, holy shit, that's an amazing group of folks that were hanging out, fucking around. But back then, you just sort of had like, hey, we're all fun and cool, but we didn't know how important it would eventually become. Wait, does anyone have a record needle I can scratch real quick? Our assembly is the same week David is having eye surgery. Coincidence? <laughs> Well, somewhere between coincidence and needing a way out of this, I just think David didn't think it was that big a deal to mention to me before I came. In fact, I'm struggling to find anything that David thinks is a big deal. At least not yet. But though I have less time than I thought I would have, I still have time. And my Greek chorus. 
and a mole or two on the inside. <laughs> Which reminds me, I wonder if David's ophthalmologist will take my call. the next part of assembly. It was just a, a permissive atmosphere to do shit. It was an amazing scene. That kind of was what he did in Boston, and that influenced my choice to never become successful. What was the reaction from Saturday Night Live? Lauren was maybe supposed to be there and didn't come. Nothing happened. What is your relationship to David Cross? I, I consider myself uh, a friend, at arm's length, of course, and a fan. Do you think he's still angry? Oh, God. All right, I gotta think about this. Um, Rumor has it you're married to an artist. We're a family of lunatics. I have no idea. Our next meeting is a very talented performer. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mr. David Cross. Assembly is created and produced by me, Robert Malazzo. Original music for this season is by Fred Armisen. The Assembly theme is by A&R. Visit our website, theassemblypodcast.com. Send any questions, comments you have. You can also suggest an assembly you'd like me to feature on the show. And of course, you can contribute there. Your contributions are incredibly appreciated. I promise. Assembly is a presentation of the Modern School of Film. Mm-hmm.